Well, hello, friends. So great to spend a bit of time with you this weekend. Today, we get to begin a new series called Waiting Room. And for the next few weeks, we're going to explore a really important question. It's something that, to be honest, has never been more relevant than it is right now, thanks to the pandemic. Now, it goes like this. What do you do when there's nothing you can do? In other words, what do you do when you find yourself in a set of circumstances that you really don't want to be in but are powerless to change? Those times when you can't go forward and you can't get out, you can just be and wait and wait and wait. Well, if we're honest, we've all had seasons in life like that. For more than a few of us, I'm convinced you're in one of those seasons right now. For some, it's something relational. You reached a spot in life when you find yourself in a marriage that's not great, but you don't really want to get divorced either. You've tried several rounds of counseling, but nothing seems to work. And the pandemic has only accelerated the relational dysfunction. You're out of ideas. And so you find yourself in a holding pattern. You're waiting for something to change because you can't make anything change. Let me ask you a question. What do you do when there's nothing you can do? For others of us, the trouble has to do with finances. I mean, everything seemed to be relatively on track until mid-March of this year. Then, like a light switch being flipped, you were told to temporarily shutter your business and lay off most of your staff. And then a few weeks later, you were told to bring them back with a mysterious something called a PPP loan. And the good news was that the government was going to pay your staff for eight weeks to bridge your business to the other side of the economic rift caused by the virus. But the bad news is that the PPP loan came to an end before the pandemic did. And now your business is slowly coming back, but, but not nearly to the levels it was before. So you find yourself up at night, staring at the ceiling, trying to figure out how long you can tread water financially. And there's no easy solution. And there's nothing you can do about it. You're waiting for something to change because you can't make anything change. What do you do when there's nothing you can do? Finally, for a few of us, our trouble is with regards to our health. And the situation is extremely complicated. It's chronic. It's debilitating. Doctors can treat it, but they can't really cure it. And it's the new reality. We're waiting for some new information to enter the picture. We're waiting for something to change. But, but we can't make anything change. So what do you do when there's nothing you can do? I don't know the specific circumstances that will leave you in life's waiting room. But in a broken world, these times come for all of us. A time when things just are the way they are and we can't do anything about it. Well, if my years of conversations with friends is any indication, these seasons of life make it tempting to believe some pretty powerful lies. The first one goes like this. I'll never be happy again. You ever said that to yourself? You think, man, I long for the days of middle school. When I had no bills, all the freedom in the world, I could eat chicken nuggets every day for lunch and end up with no acid reflux whatsoever. 
Okay, nobody actually ever said that, but you get, you get my point. It's natural during your time in life's waiting room to look back on a previous season of your life with fondness, to your years playing football in high school, or to your second year of marriage when you bought the first house, or to those first few years of parenting, you think, man, Bruce Springsteen was right. They'll pass you by, glory days. I'll never be happy again. That's not the only lie we tell ourselves, though. If you've ever reached a moment of frustration with your inability to affect your challenging life situation, you've probably said something like this, too. Nothing good can come from this. Nothing good can come from this. It's a normal and natural thing to think, even though it's not a particularly helpful thing to think. And and that's why during this series, I want to help you reframe your time in life's waiting room, whether it's your present reality or it's coming for you in the near future. I want to consider that there may actually be a way to leverage your time in the waiting room to become a better version of yourself, to grow into your potential and to grow in your faith. All that to say, for the next few weeks, I want to talk to you about what to do when you don't know what to do. And I want to talk to you about how God might want to meet you in your season of waiting in powerful, though counterintuitive, ways. Well, for today, as we begin the series, I want to directly consider one of the primary questions that arises when we find ourselves in life's waiting room, especially for people of faith. The question goes like this. If God loves me, why doesn't he do something about it? It's a great question. It's like, listen, doesn't God know? Doesn't he see? Doesn't he care? Doesn't he hear my prayers? How about this one? Is he angry with me? And and maybe even, God, can you just send me a sign to let me know you're near? Please note the intentional connection with the song that opened the service. The good news is that the New Testament authors speak to this question directly. They address the question, where is God in those seasons when we can't find our way forward and we can't find our way out? In fact, the authors repeatedly affirm a powerful reality that acts as the foundation for this series and it's also our big idea for today. It goes like this. Whatever your circumstance, God is not absent, apathetic, or angry with you. He's still at work in the middle of your mess. And and so it's always a mistake to equate God's silence with his absence. And with the rest of our time today, I want to unpack a story from the life of Jesus to show you what I mean. I want to explore how someone Jesus knew personally and loved deeply experienced a significant period of time in life's waiting room. One that made him question God's love for him. And I love this, this story, not because it turns out well, but because it reminds us that we're not the first people to question God's feelings towards us based on undesirable life situations. The story I want to unpack with you today is, is the account of a first century Jewish religious teacher named John the Baptist. Now, to be clear, he wasn't named John the Baptist to distinguish him from his friends, John the Presbyterian and John the Episcopalian, which, by the way, hashtag pastor joke, you know those come about every so often. Uh, But John was named because he baptized people by immersing them 
in water. He was John the immerser. He was John the baptizer. Anyway, here's the setup. One day, Jesus was teaching some of his first followers in the cities just north of the Sea of Galilee when he was approached by a few of John the Baptist's followers. John had sent them to ask Jesus a really important question. And it doesn't seem important to us initially, but hang with me. The question went like this. Are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? In other words, if you dig into the context, what they're asking is, hey, Jesus, are you the one God through the Old Testament prophets promised to send to make things right? Are you the one we've all been waiting for? Now, if you're paying attention, the context actually raises a more fundamental question. I mean, why didn't John ask the question to Jesus himself? Like, where was John? Well, as it turns out, he was in prison. And the reason he was there could be the topic of a Jerry Springer episode. Remember him? (laughs) Anyway, here's what happened. John the Baptist had started to speak against the actions of a Jewish king who had recently divorced his wife in order to marry his brother's wife. And if that's not bad enough, uh, this woman also happened to be his niece. So in case you're not following, the girl ends up divorcing one uncle in order to marry another. Like I said, it would make for a great Jerry Springer episode. Well, not surprisingly, everyone in Israel was talking about the situation. And so John the Baptist, as a part of his rhythm of preaching about sin and repentance, kept using the king and his new wife as specific examples of what not to do. And this does not please the king. That's a dramatic understatement. And so he has John arrested and thrown into prison. Well, a significant amount of time passes for John and nothing changes. He finds himself in an all too literal waiting room. He doesn't see a way forward and he doesn't see a way out. And so he begins to wonder what any of us would wonder in a situation like that. Is God absent, apathetic, or perhaps even angry with me? Now, here's the interesting thing. We know that Jesus loved John the Baptist. As best we can tell, they were cousins. They had known each other for as long as they had been alive. Moreover, before almost anyone else, John knew who Jesus was. A year or so before all of this went down, John had been baptizing people in the Jordan River when Jesus walked by. And John looked at his disciples and said, Hey guys, you've been following me, but that's the guy you need to follow. I mean, I'm not even worthy to tie his shoes. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But, but that's not all. See, the respect in the relationship went both ways. One day, John the ba- Jesus rather describes John the Baptist this way to a group of people who he's teaching. He says, truly, I tell you, among those born of women... There has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. In other words, Jesus says John the Baptist is like the greatest human ever to walk the face of the earth. To which, as I imagine it, someone in the back row would raise their hand and ask, uh, yeah, yeah, Jesus, uh, greater than your father Joseph? And Jesus would respond, without a doubt. And, and then another person in the back row would raise their hand and ask, uh, greater than your mother Mary? And Jesus would respond, well, let's not get carried away. 
Anyway, uh, you get the idea. Jesus was a big fan of John the Baptist. But now, because of a challenging season in his life, John the Baptist isn't sure what to think about Jesus. And here's why. When Jesus heard that John the Baptist had been arrested, he didn't go to visit him. He didn't send him a care package. He didn't even send his disciples to check in on him. But that's not even all of it because John knew that Jesus could do miracles. He had no doubt Jesus could break him out of prison if he so desired, but apparently he did not so desire, which raises a great question. What did Jesus do when he learned that one of his relatives, the guy that he says is the greatest human ever to walk the face of the earth, is in prison? What does Jesus do? And Matthew, in his account of the life of Jesus, tells us. He says, when Jesus heard that John had been put into prison, he withdrew to Galilee, leaving Nazareth. He went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake. Now, it's easy to, to miss if you don't know the geography, but Matthew tells us that upon learning of John's fate, Jesus literally moves in the other direction. John is a few days' walk south of Nazareth, and Jesus walks north. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever felt that way somewhere along the journey of your faith? I think if we're honest, we all have. We've all felt like instead of coming to our rescue, Jesus somehow moved in the other direction, like moved away from us. And in an unfiltered moment, we say to ourselves, I mean, Jesus, couldn't you send me a letter or bake me a cake or something? I mean, can you somehow let me know that you care? Now, now, as bad as all that sounds, it's actually worse. Um, do you know that if you visit the Middle East, and you really should with me someday, it'd be a lot of fun, you can travel to the ruins of the desert palace where John was held. It's in the country of Jordan today, just across the Dead Sea from Israel, and it's called Machaerus, and, and I brought a picture. Uh, here it is, you can sort of see the Dead Sea in the distance, but just notice with me, this is a dry and desolate land. I mean, this palace is out in the middle of nowhere on top of a gigantic mountain. It's beautiful as long as you have access to air conditioning and drinking water. I've hiked in this region during the summer heat and it literally feels like you're trying to breathe out of a hairdryer. It's not somewhere you want to hang out for very long. By way of contrast, here's the view from Capernaum where Jesus and his disciples had gone. It's beautiful. It's lush. It's full of fresh Water. So just notice with me, when John sends his followers to ask Jesus a question from behind bars in a desert dungeon, Jesus and his disciples are basically at the beach. The contrast is stunning. I mean, the only reason John has anything to eat at all is that his followers regularly bring him food. As best we can tell, John had been in prison over a year before he sends word to Jesus. I mean, John keeps hearing rumors about Jesus, what he's teaching and what he's doing, and he's confused. And so finally, after months and months in a literal waiting room, John sends his followers to Jesus to ask a question with deeply personal undertones. They come to Jesus and ask, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else 
In other words, Jesus, all the signs affirm that you are who I've always believed that you were. But honestly, I'm beginning to feel like I must have missed something. I'm troubled because because you're doing most of the things, but not all of the things that the Old Testament prophets predicted that the Messiah would do. I mean, specifically, 700 years before the time of Jesus, a prophet named Isaiah wrote that the Messiah would one day come and proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. So John sends two of his followers to basically ask Jesus, if you're the Messiah, why haven't you come to rescue me? And Jesus responds in in a fascinating way. He says to the disciples of John, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear, the dead are raised. And the good news is proclaimed to the poor. In other words, go back and tell John all of the great things I'm doing for other people. In this passage, Jesus basically quotes a whole series of passages from the prophet Isaiah about how the Messiah would help the blind and the lame and the poor and the lepers. But he intentionally leaves out the passage about the prisoners being set free. Instead, he concludes his message back to John saying, blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. In other words, blessed is the one who does not interpret my silence as absence. Blessed is the one who when I do certain things or don't do certain things or don't answer certain prayers or don't come through or don't break through and change circumstances, blessed is that person who continues to trust me and continues to follow me. It's like Jesus says to John, I have some good news and I have some bad news. The good news is that I am the one who was to come. I'm the one who God sent to make things right. And I'm demonstrating my identity through miracles that open a window into how things will be for everyone one day in the kingdom of heaven. The good news is embodied in the incredible things I'm doing for other people. But John, the bad news is that, well, you're not going to be released from prison. You're right. You're in a waiting room. You can't do anything about your situation. But John, in spite of all of that, you need to never forget that God is still with you and for you even when your challenging situation doesn't change. I mean, there's a story at play here, John, and it's way bigger and better than you can possibly imagine. So I need you to trust me even in this. I mean, if if we're honest, we've all had moments when we felt like John. And we've wondered if if God is is paying attention. But but here's here's why I love this story. Uh, This account from the life of John the Baptist illustrates that in those moments when we literally feel like God has forgotten about us, he still loves us He still knows exactly 
where we are, even in those times that he chooses not to move in our direction. And think about it. If that was the case for the man Jesus called the greatest human ever to walk the earth, then it's not a stretch to imagine that it may occasionally be the case for people like you and me. Friends, Jesus knew all about John's situation, and your heavenly Father knows all about yours. That's why it's, it's a mistake to equate God's apparent absence for apathy. Now, to be fair, this message is a bit awkward, and I struggled with it all week because no, none of us right now is like, oh, I'm so glad you told me that. I feel so much better about my situation. I, I don't even need to tune into the rest of the series. I'm, I'm good to go. See, what my goal for today as we begin to explore this concept is to create a necessary category for you to understand that your unanswered prayers don't mean that God is uninterested in your life. You and John the Baptist have something in common. In fact, you and some of the finest people who've ever walked the planet have something in common. As I was preparing for today's talk, I realized that the Bible is actually filled with accounts of people who spent seasons in life's waiting room. Seasons when God was silent, but not absent. Actually, I had so much fun, I made a list. So here you go. People from the Old Testament, including Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, David, Elijah, Elisha, Job, and Jeremiah. People from the New Testament, including Zechariah, Elizabeth, Simeon, Peter, Andrew, James, John, Matthew, and Paul. In fact, as I was, as I was writing this list, I, I realized it would actually be easier to make a list of the people in the Bible who didn't spend time in life's waiting room because I'm honestly not sure there would be anyone on that list. I say all that to say that, that God's silence is not evidence of his absence in your life. And his apparent absence is not a reflection of apathy towards you or anger with you. There's a category where we feel abandoned, but we're not abandoned. There are seasons of life when God is silent, but he is not inactive. And I love the fact that Jesus said, blessed is anyone who does not stumble. Blessed is anyone who does not lose their faith on account of me. Because friends, when we hold on to our faith and our seasons in the waiting room, we activate potential to become a better version of ourselves when we exit the waiting room because someday we will. Someday you will. And actually activating that potential is what I want to talk about for the next few weeks. But before I let you go for today, I want to leave you with a few questions to discuss over lunch or in your big idea group this week. As I say each week, discussion is a fantastic way to move this material from concept to reality in your life and to share your story with other people. Uh, today's questions go like this. Number one, have you ever faced a season of life that caused you to feel like you'd never be happy again? I mean, describe it and then talk to people about what, what happened for you in that season, what set you up in that place. And number two, have you ever felt like God was absent, apathetic, or angry with you? And maybe describe that 
experience. And finally, the third question. Uh, During the message, um, I asserted that God loves you regardless of whether it feels like he loves you. And this is the question, how would your life be different if you lived as though you believed that were true? Because that perspective really does have the power to change everything. Would you join me in a prayer as we close? Heavenly Father, we, we acknowledge that you move in our lives in often mysterious ways. And we confess that the deepest work often comes during seasons that are profoundly uncomfortable. And so I pray for those of us who honestly this weekend would say, um, I'm in a waiting room. I pray first that you would reignite hope and joy in their lives. You would bring to mind the ways that this story may potentially be redeemed. And I also pray that you would give us all courage as we move through a season of life where in a sense we're all in a waiting room. Give us the courage to look inward and to ask the question, what would it look like to partner with you so that we emerge from this season a better version of ourself because of what we learned during the time that is so profoundly uncomfortable. And so we we thank you for believing in us and for loving us, for always being with us. We bless you in the name of your son, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Grace and peace, friends. We'll see you next week.